Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you'd make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, we might be shaped and molded to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this last week, our family pulled out all of the Christmas decorations and all the lights and everything, and we began decorating for Christmas. And one of my jobs in this process is to hang up the Christmas lights. And as I was kind of like unwinding all of the Christmas lights, one of my daughters walked up to me and she said, Daddy, why don't you ask Ryan Wiley to help get the Christmas lights up? Now, I don't know why she asked that. It might be because this is what the Wiley's house looks like for Christmas. And this is what my house looks like. (laughs) You know, for at least the last 50 years, the consumer-oriented holiday we call Christmas with Santa and elves and reindeer has taught us that the primary way we prepare for Christmas is through decorating and most especially through the shopping and the purchasing and the wrapping of Christmas gifts. And it's interesting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with, with decorating and I'm good with Christmas gifts and I'm good with all of that. But what's interesting to me is that for at least the last 1,500 years, dating back to the fourth century at least, the church has concerned itself with a different kind of preparation and readiness for Christmas. During Advent, they asked not, am I ready to host dinner with the in-laws or am I ready for gifts on Christmas morning? The question that concerned them was, am I ready, am I prepared for the coming of God? Advent is taken from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so Advent speaks about the coming or arrival of God in at least two senses. First, it reminds us of the coming or the arrival of God among us in a manger in the first century. But it also reminds us that God will come again in power and glory. And so the question we ask during this Advent season, am I ready for God's coming among us? And this is a challenging question, isn't it? And it's a very personal question because, look, a lot of us have a difficult time trying to prepare for our guests that will come this next Christmas, right? And some of you, you've got family coming in and they are dysfunctional and they're difficult to be with and they need therapy and they're not in therapy, but they need therapy. And and you're just like, I have a difficult time preparing for my family that's going to come. What on earth does it look like to prepare my own heart and life for the coming of God among us? And, you know, the person that that the church has looked to for the last 2,000 years to help us answer that question, how can I be prepared for the coming of God, is John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist is the Advent prophet, You know, I I saw this uh, image of uh, John this week. I like this because it captured kind of the unruly, the, um, you know, the intransient nature of, or the intractable nature of John. I like it. John is utterly out of sync with his age and our age and just about any age. And yet again and again, the church has turned to John the Baptist to help us prepare for Advent. He is the Advent prophet. Now, of course, I know a lot of us, we don't associate John with Christmas. 
You know, he is not uh, glorious and beautiful like the angels. Uh, he, he is not in our manger scenes. He's not on our Christmas cards. He doesn't have a role in our bathrobe pageants. He, he doesn't have the mystique of the Magi or the courage of Joseph or the sublime beauty of the young virgin or the endearing quality of the shepherds. You know, John is hippie and he's grunge. He lives in the desert. He's dressed in animal skins and he's eating insects and he is strange. And yet again and again, we are turned to John throughout Advent to help us prepare for the coming of God. Look at how it puts it in Matthew chapter three, verse one. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then it says this, now John was clothed in garments of camel's hair and a leather belt was around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, isn't it interesting that it highlights John's clothing, his attire. You know, there's nowhere in the New Testament where we get a description of what Jesus wore or of what Mother Mary wore or of what any of the disciples wore. And yet here we get a description of John the Baptist's clothing. And we wonder about what he's wearing and we wonder about his diet, you know? He's eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, this sounds like something that some hipster in Silver Lake might, you know, a diet he might embrace, you know, to help his gut biome or something, you know? Um, <laughs> You want, a, you want a burger, bro? No, I'm trying to restore my gut biome. I only eat locusts and wild honey, you know. But, but it's interesting, what's up with this clothing? You know, um, th there's something going on here that Pastor Robert, our great fast fashion theologian, might refer to as sartorial semiotics. That was a big phrase I learned from Robert's book. And it was actually one of the best things I got from Robert's book because it made me sound smart. Like people will be talking with me and sometimes I'll just throw out sartorial semiotics. And you just write that one down and next time you're at a Christmas party, you're just in the middle of a conversation, just drop that little, that little beauty right there in the middle of the conversation. Anyway, sartorial semiotics, it simply means sartorial refers to our clothing and semiotics is what it symbolizes or signs or points to. And here John's clothing is symbolizing, it is signing, it is pointing us to something. What is it pointing us to? Well, it's pointing us back to another figure in the Old Testament whose name was Elijah. And Elijah also wore camel's hair. He also wore a very similar kind of garb and he lived an austere lifestyle like John. You see, this image is intended to point us back to say that John is the new Elijah. You see, back in the Old Testament, there was a promise that before the great and coming day of the Messiah, before the day when the glory of God would return among his people, that day would be heralded by an Elijah-like figure who would come to prepare the way. And John is saying with his clothing, with, his, with his, uh, the optics of what he's wearing, he's saying, look, I am that prophet of old. I have come to prepare the way for the coming of God. A new day has come. He is pointing us to the turn of the ages. He is saying, look, finally, the long-awaited glory of God is about ready to break in. Now get ready. And how does he get us ready? Well, you could sum up the work he does to get us ready in one word, and it is that word, repent. 
He says, the way you prepare, the way you're gonna get ready for the coming of God is you need to repent. But what does that mean? You know, John says, look, the way you should prepare for Christmas is not by shopping and wrapping and buying and hanging ornaments and getting, you know, the lights up. The most essential, the most primal way you should prepare for the coming of God among us is through repentance. But again, what does that mean? You know, repentance is one of these old Bible words. It's kind of fallen on hard times among us. You know, we we think of this as uh, the word that is on the lips of some self-righteous, you know, guy who shows up at like a rock concert or something with a big sandwich board and a sign that says, repent, you're going to hell or something like that. And we think this is, this, you know, what what is this all about, you know? And so this, this word can be dismissed. But that's unfortunate because repentance is among the most important disciplines it is, it is among the most important counterintuitive and countercultural habits and practices that we must learn to develop if we are going to have a healthy life and soul and relationships. We need to learn the subtle art and the countercultural discipline of repentance. And so today what I want to do is I want to kind of like explore this idea of repentance. Next week we're going to come back to it again. Probably shouldn't have told you that because you may not come back. (laughs) Two weeks on repentance. Merry Christmas. Don't ever say I never gave you anything, you know. (laughs) But today I want to talk about repentance underneath three headings. Number one, I want us to explore a little bit of what it is. Secondly, I want to teach you how to avoid it. And thirdly, I want to share with you why that's probably not a good idea, to avoid it, that is. Number one, let's talk a little bit about what repentance is. Look what it says in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, to John, and they were being baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so John comes out, he says, repent. And how do they respond? It says, they get baptized. And what is baptism all about? Baptism is like having a public moral bath. It is like saying, look, morally and ethically, I'm a mess, I'm dirty, and I need to be washed. And so what is baptism? Baptism is about coming clean. It's about admitting. It's about going public with the fact that you are in need. And what's interesting is John doesn't just call the people that everyone would expect to get baptized. Normally, they would think it's the Gentiles, the pagans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. They need to be washed and baptized. But John just doesn't call the irreligious. He calls the religious people to get baptized. He says, you need a bath. So John is doing something that's very subversive and very offensive. He's not just calling the unclean Gentiles, but even the clean religious Jews to a bath. And he's saying, look, it's not just the irreligious, but it's the religious that also need to come out public with their dirt, confessing that they need to be cleansed. And then it says in the text that as they were being baptized, they were being baptized, and it says, quote, they were confessing or admitting their sins. You know, the most important word in this paragraph, says Frederick Dale Bruner, is that word admitting. He says this, He says, we are free from sin only when we face it. We disown sin only by owning up to sin. Sin is remitted only when it is admitted. 
In other words, repentance begins when we stop denying, when we stop blame shifting, and we actually take ownership for our own terrible attitudes and our, our unbelieving hearts and our addictive patterns and habits and our destructive patterns of speech and our fears and our anger and our control tendencies that's making us unbearable and difficult to live with. You know who you are. I'm right there with you. <laughs> and he's saying, look, our entrance into the Advent life means taking a good long look, not at someone else's deficiencies and faults or self-centeredness, but our own. Or as Proverbs 28, 13 says, the one who conceals their sin will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes it receives mercy. And so here is where repentance begins, when we own, when we admit, when we go public with our own sin and brokenness, our addictions, our attitudes, our fears, our anxieties, and we come out. But it doesn't just, it's not just about ownership and regret. I want you to see in the text that it also involves change. John comes preaching repentance and then he comes giving a baptism of repentance. And that word repent is the Greek word metanoia. Can we all say metanoia? Metanoia. And it simply means to change one's mind or heart or imagination or way of life. And essentially what it's saying, John says, look, God's kingdom is now breaking in. And so now I'm calling you to change and to orient your life and your values and your heart around the values and the heart of God on full display in the kingdom of God that's breaking in in Jesus. And so repentance involves change. You know, it's not just mean, it doesn't just mean we're sorry. It means we're orienting our life to a different goal, the goal of the kingdom of God. And, and I think probably the most well-known cinematic depiction of uh, repentance that I know of comes to us in, of course, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> and you remember what happens? Uh, Vader, no doubt, in Jedi school was taught those, those words that fear leads to anger and anger, le anger leads to hate. And so ultimately, it's fear that is, takes you on the path to the dark side. And it seems that, uh, you know, Vader, you know, he, he, he was caught up in the darkness, his own fear that led to anger and then hate. And ultimately, he is just a pawn in Emperor Palpatine's scheme to control and abusively take over the universe, right? And in that scene at the end of Return of the Jedi, he's in a, a lightsaber fight with Luke Skywalker. And you can almost see what's happening. You know, there's a calculus happening in uh, Vader's mind. And, and he starts to be in tension within himself. And Luke keeps saying, Father, I know there's some good in you. You guys, are you tracking with me? Are we together on... But, th but there's... Um, there's this moment where Emperor Palpatine starts zapping Luke with the force and torturing him. And he's crying out in pain. And finally, the turn happens. The, the greatest act of repentance in cinematic history. And, uh, and Vader turns on the very dark power that had been destroying his own heart and life and his family. And he takes it and he throws him down the uh, reactor chamber or whatever. 
And this is what repentance is. It is dramatic change. It is turning away from those things that are destroying your own heart and life and your families and your relationships. But because repentance involves change, it's painful and it's hard. Flannery O'Connor put it like this, human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful, isn't it? I mean, it's painful to take ownership of your wrong. It's painful to admit when you've done something stupid. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's painful. It's difficult. And so I just want to give you some tips on how you can avoid it. You understand my tongue is planted firmly in my cheek right now. Next week, we're going to get into how we can really kind of like move into repentance. But today, I want to talk a little bit about how you can avoid it. Because in our text, we meet some religious leaders who are very skilled at avoiding repentance. Look at what it says in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. (laughs) John had no idea how to win friends and influence people. He never read that book. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise these stones, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. But even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a harsh word of judgment. He says, the axe is not far away. The axe is God's judgment, and the tree are the people who are bringing pain and destruction into God's world. And he says, the axe is not far away. It's not in the shed. It's not off in the bed of the truck. It's right there, close, laying at the very root of the tree. Judgment is impending. But what's interesting is this harsh word of judgment comes to not the irreligious people, but to the religious people, to the church people, to the Bible people. And he says, wake up. But do you see what he's doing in our text? He exposes their strategies for avoiding repentance. And what strategy did they employ? They said, look, it's our heritage. We have Abraham as our father. And he says, look, your heritage is not going to save you. And so he exposes, he calls out their strategies for avoiding repentance. And so let's talk about some of our common strategies for avoiding repentance. And we'll put this under the heading of tips for avoiding repentance. So number one tip for avoiding repentance. You know, this, I thought this was appropriate because there's tips for surviving the holidays this time of year, right? Here's tips for surviving Advent. Number one, play the victim card. You know, you recognize that you, you said what you shouldn't have said, that you, you yelled at your kids, you went off the handle, uh, you, you're, you're, you're mean-spirited, you're difficult to be with, you've lied to your boss, but listen, if they knew what you had been going through, they wouldn't, they wouldn't accuse you of doing wrong, they would congratulate you that you didn't do more wrong. I can't believe that's the only thing you did. You, after you've been wounded so, so, so much, you know. And of course, the good thing about the victim card is that it's almost always partially true because almost all of us have been victims at some point in our life. 
And of course, some of you have had very challenging upbringings and you genuinely have suffered injustices. But what we can do is we can take a partial picture and we can make it the whole. So that whenever someone accuses you of something, you retreat back into the fact that you're a victim and you can escape from having to deal with your sin. So number one, you can play the victim card. Tip number two, you can make us feel like we're walking on eggshells around you. This is a very effective strategy. And some of you, we can't even begin to approach you with any word of accusation because when we do, you start getting very sensitive and you launch out on us and, and we trigger a very extreme reaction. And you think, well, look at you, you know? You're the problem, you know? And, and, and stop it. Oh, how do you, I'm such an awful, and we retreat almost into self-loathing or we attack. And what's great about making it feel like we're walking in eggshells around you is that it means that no one gets to have a voice in your life. And if they don't have a voice in your life, then no one will call you out and address you of the ways you're hurting other people. And if they don't do that, then it, it's, it's great because you don't have to repent, right? So number two, you can make us feel like we're walking on eggshells around you. As a close cousin, by the way, you can surround yourself with people who only affirm what you say and do. And then if they disagree with you, you can cancel them and find some new friends. Third, become a crusader in the culture war. So find something that fills you with moral outrage. It's not difficult in our culture. Read articles online, watch YouTube clips or news stations that fuel your outrage at them. It's what keeps them in business. Again, this is not difficult to do. Uh, it might be government overreach or taxation or the illegals or pronouns or whatever. And, and just get outraged by it. And the benefit is huge here because you actually get to feel like you are a moral crusader. You know, you are not one of those relativists out there. You know, you care about right and wrong, you know? And you get to care about right and wrong and, and be filled with moral outrage without ever having to turn that moral outrage on yourself and your own deceitful and wicked heart at times. Number three, or I'm sorry, number four, listen to sermons on behalf of someone else. You know, by all means, go to church, you know, soak up the convicting sermons, but be sure that you are always thinking about the person you, were, you wished were listening to the sermon. And maybe go home and send them a link or, uh, you know, just make sure they listen to it. But think always like, wow, this would be really good for someone else. And what's great is it gives you, again, the, the religious satisfaction that you really agree with what's being said, but you just don't ever have to bring it back on yourself. So listen to sermons on behalf of someone else. Fifth tactic, and this is probably the most effective of them all, keep your sin hidden. Whatever you do, never be vulnerable with another person. Keep your sin hidden from others, but expose just a little bit. Expose just a little bit of, of, of the fact that, yeah, you are human and you struggle with things, but don't ever get real and honest about the depth of the way in which that addiction has actually overcome you and you cannot get free. Don't ever become so honest to say, look, my own fear and need to control is actually negatively, it's, it's harming, it's hurting my kids. 
and, 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 and my anger, it's destroying my marriage. And, 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 and my own rebellious heart and my self-centeredness, it keeps wounding my parents. Whatever you do, you know, keep that stuff hidden, keep it below the surface, and don't let anyone see what's there. Of course, the problem with this is that it is only when sin is spoken honestly and openly that we can actually find healing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He goes on in that same little passage to say, you can dare to be a sinner. And it is my hope and my prayer for us as a community that more and more we can become a safe place where we can actually be honest and real about what's really going on in our hearts and lives. And in coming out and confessing, we can find healing. But again, if you want to re avoid repentance, you can keep your sin hidden. So um, we've talked about what repentance is. We've talked about some strategies that you can employ to avoid it. Some of you are really good at that, those strategies. Some of you have four or five more strategies. And maybe we can start a community group next semester where you can share those and we can kind of work together on cultivating those. But what I want to do now is I want to talk about why it's a terrible idea to avoid repentance. You know, I, I was reading a, a book this week um, by a, a pastor and theologian whose name is Fleming Rutledge, and she pointed something out in the book of Malachi that I'd never thought about before, and I had never seen before, and it's, it's intimately connected to what we're talking about right now. And uh, so the final book in the Christian Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and the final chapter in the book of Malachi talks about Elijah who will come to prepare God's people for the arrival of the Messiah. In other words, the book of Malachi prophesies the day when the, the new Elijah, John the Baptist, would come on the scene to prepare God's people. And uh, so it's interesting, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible is arranged in such a way that the prophetic literature is in the middle of their Bible, but the, the Christian Old Testament, we rearranged it so that we put the prophets last, and again, the last prophet is Malachi, and I want to read to you the very last three or four lines in the Christian Old Testament, and look what it says. This is Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And the Old Testament ends. He says, Elijah's going to come. It, it, read, John the Baptist is going to come. He's going to prepare 
my people for my arrival. And how is he going to prepare my people? Well, he's going to preach repentance, of course. But notice what it says in the text, what he's going to do in his work of preparation. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He's speaking here about a dramatic change that's going to take place right in the heart of homes. A change that will bring reconciliation and healing where the hearts of children will be turned to parents and the hearts of parents will be turned to children. And he's speaking here about this last climatic moment before God arrives on the scene and, 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 and the work that he's gonna do to prepare God's people to turn their hearts ultimately will result in reconciliation and healing. And so let me just put it like this. When John comes and preaches repentance, when he says turn, when he comes and says change, he's not primarily concerned about us turning away from the bad, though he's certainly concerned about that. Some of you have bad attitudes you need to turn from, you need to change. Some of you have bad imaginations and bad hearts and you've got, you've got some, some bad addictive patterns and some dark stuff that's got a stranglehold on your life and it's negatively affecting those around you. And he says, you do and I need to turn away from that. But the primary emphasis doesn't lie on what we turn away from it's what we turn to. And I think what he's getting at here is that the work of repentance is aimed at the work of reconciliation and healing. Turning away from destructive stuff that's hurting us and hurting those around us, dropping that, laying that aside, actually is aimed at bringing reconciliation and healing with those who we might be irreconciled with. And, and, and again, that's why the return of the Jedi example is so powerful. It is like a fulfillment of Malachi chapter four. The hearts of the fathers are turning to their children, right? Isn't that what's happening with Vader turning to Luke? Yes, okay. But listen, the reason why it's a terrible idea to avoid dealing with stuff in your life is because it is the way in which you so loosely and abusively use words. It is because your addictions to pornography or to drugs or to alcohol or, or your enslavement to your own anger or your own self-righteousness and your critical, judgy attitude that you walk around and you're always puncturing everyone else, all of those attitudes that we're being called to turn away from are negatively affecting the people around you and they're hurting your relationships. And relationships are what's most important in life. You know, as human beings, we are made in the image of God. And God in his very essence is a relational God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a relationship of love and he created us to experience and to live into our full humanity when we are living reconciled, healed, rich relationships of love. And it's our attitudes, it's our hearts, it's our action, it's our words, it's our, it's our junk that we're carrying with us that keeps messing up our relationships. And of course, it's not just you. Other people are bringing it into your relationships too, aren't they? And so this Advent, we dare not avoid the difficult and good work of repentance. We, we dare not neglect the subtle art 
and the countercultural practice of this work of changing and admitting and confessing and, and working towards healing because our relationships depend upon it. And of course, at an even deeper level, a deeper core, the relationship that this most centrally and most importantly affects your own heart posture, your attitude, your life, your choices, and all the stuff that you should make. And the relationship it affects the most is your relationship with God. And ultimately, turning from the junk we're looking to and actually turning to God, that's where healing begins to take place. But don't misunderstand me. The healing that takes place when we repent and we receive the coming of God into our lives, this kingdom that's broken in and all of God's values and all of his beauty and all of his love. And, and we say, I'm gonna, stop, I'm gonna stop living in this old patterns and habits and I'm gonna come into the light and I'm gonna name it and I'm gonna confess it and I'm gonna be vulnerable and I'm gonna be honest and I'm gonna be real and I'm gonna work towards healing and I'm gonna work on myself and, and I'm gonna bring myself out. He, he, like when we do that, it is not so much that God moves toward us and comes to us when we prepare ourselves. It's that that work of preparation is a response to the, to the good news of Christmas and Advent that God in Christ has already come to you. You know, very often the problem in our relationships, even when we do repent, is that if the other person isn't there, I mean, it does take two to bring reconciliation, doesn't it? And we know that, we experience that. But listen, God has already done everything necessary for your reconciliation. God has already done everything in order to bring us healing. In fact, in the next text, he does it in the most surprising way. In the very next passage in, in Matthew, Jesus actually enters into the waters of baptism and John baptizes him. And we wonder, why is Jesus doing that? John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus goes into the waters to be baptized, but he has no sin. Why has he gone into the waters of baptism? He has come in solidarity, identifying with us sinners, so that we would know that Christ came into this world to take on himself our own sin and brokenness so that he might identify with our darkness, so that he might bring it to an end, so that we can be reconciled and healed. And he says, turn away from your unbelief, turn away from, 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 from your hopelessness and turn to my love and receive it. And when you do so, you will meet my healing, reconciling love that will embrace you and cleanse you. You know, we're gonna close our service together at the Lord's table. So I wanna invite our worship team to come up. And it's in this practice that we're about to share in together where we share in the bread and the cup that we are reminded that Christ took on flesh and blood in solidarity with our own flesh and blood. That Christ took on our sin on the cross, identifying himself with our broken human race so that he might bear in himself the judgment we deserve so that we can be healed and reconciled by his love. So let's pray together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come to us in Jesus. 
And now as we come to the table, would you open up our hearts and minds? Would you assure us by your spirit that you love us, that you welcome us to your table? And even as we come to this practice, would you help us to abandon and let go of our own darkness that we're holding on to? And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.